Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from PolicyForum.net. In this, our 100th program and final episode for 2021, we examine the security dimensions of the year that was and cast forward to explore what might be in store in the year ahead. Chris Farnham, Senior Outreach and Policy Officer, is joined by Catherine Manstead, Senior Fellow in the Practice of National Security, William Stoltz, Senior Advisor for Public Policy, and Rory Medcalf, Head of the College. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. G'day, Will, Rory, Catherine. Welcome to not only our 2021 end of year podcast, but our 100th episode. And thank you and congratulations for being part of what made this a successful podcast. It's brilliant to be here. Did we get a letter from the Queen? <laughs> I'm, I'm expecting it any minute now. Right. That's a, a, another benefit of AUKUS, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I said, this is the end of year wrap podcast. So I'm going to kick off just by asking each of you to say in as few words as possible, how would you sum up 2021? I'm going to kick off with you, Will. So the, the phrase that comes to mind when I think about 2021 is the phrase turning point. I think we've seen um, in the year that's been and the year that preceded the emergence of some really pivotal, uh, pivotal events in the way Australia uh, conceives of national security and the issues affecting um, our society's security that are creating some important historic turning points that I guess we're going to see play out in coming years. You know, we're seeing different relationships about uh, technologies integration into how we live. You know, we've all had to engage in a very remote um, way of living and, and um, operating as a society. But we've also started to see um, some really important geopolitical turning points in you know, in the nature of great power competition in the world today, uh, but then also the way smaller states are posturing to shape the international environment. So I think w historians will look back at, at at this period and potentially point to it as as a as a turning point for um, the way states interact and and for Australians in particular, potentially the way that we uh, conceive of our security as well. Will you use the term turning point? I think I'd use the word hangover. I think 2021 felt like a hangover from 2020 in the sense that it was very blurry. I, I find it difficult to distinguish what happened in 2020 versus 2021. And a lot of the trends that we saw in 2020 that I think we thought were going to end or reverse by 2021 seemed to intensify. 
Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that, Catherine. My, my line was deja vu all over again. You know, there was this false sense of relief in December 2020 that somehow a new calendar year would, would bring about a new reality into our worlds that had been dimmed by 2020, you know, globally because we had this promise of vaccines for America and largely speaking its allies as well because Trump was on his way out of the White House and because Australia uh, was getting over the drought and we'd, we'd uh, broken the back of those horrible bushfires that we'd been going through at the end of 2020. 19 and 2020. But as we know, optimism is for naive fools. And by January 6, we saw on the steps of the US Capitol building that Trumpism wasn't going to end with him being legitimately voted out of power. Vaccine rollouts have been hindered by political misadventure, campaigns of disinformation and a far from comprehensive global rollout. Now we have a virulent social insurgency of people who truly believe that the vaccine is harmful or even some global conspiracy. Um, and even others who know the benefits of the science, but are undermining it for political gain. And added to that, given how many parts of the world don't even have access to vaccines, there's an increased risk of newer variants that can cause new waves of infection. And I'm not a virologist or an epidemiologist, so maybe I should just stop at saying that there is a significant fear of risks of new variants, and that's bad enough in itself. And finally, if you live on the east coast of Australia, the droughts and bushfires may have been replaced by La Nina rains and flooding. So for me, 2021 is just old deja vu in a new bottle. Rory, what's your what's your take? Wow, on? there's so, so much there, Chris, and you've you, you've considered it well. I, I would be um, naturally cautious about uh, dismissing optimism, um, but I would replace it instead with a with a quiet sense of confidence because I I, I don't think we can be optimistic about the present international security environment, but I wouldn't put 2021 and 2020 quite in the same basket. I think there's been the beginning of a, um, a mobilisation in a number of our countries to uh, improve our national responses to these issues, and I would probably separate here uh, the different Cs, um, COVID, climate, China, <laughs> that, that, that you know the, the big three, I think, black elephants that we've been dealing with in the last couple of years. Um, it's not all bad news. Uh, I think the um, from an Australian security point of view, um, this is a year where we've crossed all sorts of thresholds or Rubicons or whatever you want to call them um, in making some pretty hard decisions about national security and. I'll remember 2021 as the year, and history will tell, you know, for better or worse, but the year that the Quad and AUKUS, uh, two major strategic and diplomatic initiatives, have really started to take shape. And they're markers now for how Australia is going to protect its interests the next 10 years ahead. The hard work begins now on them, and, and none of that means that the issues about social cohesion or the issues about the impact of the pandemic or, or grappling with climate change. You know, none of those have been resolved, but I I don't see 2021 in quite the same blurry way uh, that my, my colleague Catherine does. And before I end on that point, um, I would wind back to the beginning, Chris, and actually commend you personally on this podcast series, because just to note that this is a proposal that you brought to the National Security College a couple of years ago, and I was somewhat sceptical uh, at first about whether this really fits our our core business of uh, lifting Australia's national security capability. Uh, but the contribution the podcast makes to the public debate in this country and internationally, uh, I think now is unquestioned. So congratulations. Thank you. I, honestly, it was, it was easy to do given the massive 
depth of talent that we have at the National Security College or passing through. All I had to do was stick microphones in front of people and it came together. With that consent, with that consent. With we, their, we don't bug the consent. National Security And College. now I'll let you go back to uh, insulting optimists. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, well, Catherine, what are some of the things, actually, even before I go to what are some things that caught your eye in 2021, since you last recorded with us, which was earlier, right at the start of this year, I believe, you've donned a second hat. You are now also the Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX. So what I'd love for you to do, if you could, is maybe just give us some of the, the big moments or some of the things that happened in 2021 in terms of cyber that you believe are worth a mention. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, I would absolutely embrace Will's term of a turning point for cyber um, in the last year and moving into 2022 as well. We talk in cyber in terms of cyber year zero having happened in 2012 to 2013. Those were the years of the Snowden revelations, of Stuxnet, of the first nation state attacks against uh, Saudi Arabia, America and others. It really put cyber and cyber war on the map. And I really think 2020 to 2022 is going to be uh, the next major turning point in cybersecurity. And just this year, for instance, we saw cyber criminals absolutely coming into their own. So ransomware where you just uh, lock up um, a, a system in order to extract a ransom, those criminals became incredibly emboldened and increasingly destructive in a way we've never seen before. We saw Colonial Pipeline in the US, a major energy provider, shut down, uh, disrupting energy supplies to the US, and US officials putting investigations of these types of cybercrime offences on a similar footing to terrorism. So we've seen both the criminals stepping up their game and also a sense of global, uh, a serious global response and concern on cybercrime, which really probably never rated as a national security issue before. It was seen as you know, just a garden variety criminal thing that would disappear in its own time. Well, certainly 2021's proven that false. But we've also seen a major uptick in nation state uh, cyber crime activity as well and a bit of a wake-up call really. So we had the SolarWinds event, Russian, major Russian cyber espionage campaign, Microsoft Exchange. So just just to stop you on SolarWinds, mm. uh, that was one of the biggest watershed moments in, in cybersecurity. Can you just give us a couple of sentences on what it was and what made it so important? Well, SolarWinds and Microsoft Exchange, the two big hacks of this year, I'd put into a similar bucket. SolarWinds, Russia, Microsoft Exchange, China. Uh, the notion is that you get into the supply chain bloodstream of the economy. So instead of just hacking one company, you hack a tool that multiple companies, government organisations globally around the world use uh, so that suddenly you're into one, hundreds of organisations. And SolarWinds was Russia's foray into that, Microsoft Exchange, the Chinese MSS, Australia joined an unprecedented multilateral group in attributing that to China. And what makes Microsoft Exchange perhaps even more pernicious than SolarWinds was the way in which uh, the Chinese MSS also used and cooperated with cyber criminals and also kind of left the door open when they did that um, hack um, to a range of other financially motivated cyber criminals just to jump in on the back of that as well, causing a massive amount of destruction. We're still seeing the consequences now. There are still organisations in Australia that are vulnerable and that probably don't even know that they've been hit or they will be hit. And, and, and just, just on the concerted attribution from so many different countries, that, that was a big change in the way that we've seen responses to big attacks like this as well. What, why did we see that kind of response for this particular attack? I think because of the, the irresponsible nature in which it was conducted. All states do 
naughty things in cyberspace. All states, unfortunately, do cyber espionage. But the way in which this one happened with that murky relationship with cyber criminals, with the indiscriminate targeting, um, that seemed to cross some pretty serious red lines for a lot of countries. And it was a really, as you say, it was a really interesting coalition of countries that came out to attribute that to China. It wasn't just your Five Eyes countries. The EU was in there, NATO. They've never done this type of attribution before. Uh, Japan, others uh, kind of came in and said, no, this is this is not on and we're going to, to out China and say this is bad conduct. Um, I think what we should be looking for next year, though, is how we choose to respond to this. Um, Australia, and this is to... to kind of jump ahead to one of your questions about what we should be looking for next year and what's remarkable about this year. It's just the continued pace of regulatory change and national security-related legislation coming out of government. And we can talk about whether we think that always hits the mark or is the right response. But certainly in terms of cyber, 2022, year of the cyber regulator, we are going to see more and more and more national security-related cyber legislation uh, coming out of government. And that's potentially on one hand, a good thing for our cyber defences and on another is just going to be a really interesting environment that we're going to have to deal with in the private sector, but government as well is going to have to live up to its name as a regulator and actually resource uh, all of these capabilities that and monitoring systems and enforcement systems that they're putting into place. And that's 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 going to be a big step change for government. Yeah, if I, if I can jump in there, Chris, I, I can't agree more with... Um... Catherine's uh, emphasis on this issue, you know, the Microsoft Exchange um, attack, to my mind, is is an example of one of those um, tipping points on Australia's approach to national security that I mentioned before, in the sense that it is highlighting the con the conflation and the complete in- intermingling of law enforcement issues with intelligence issues. You know, this the fact that you now have organised crime groups being co-opted and, and intermingled with state actors is actually an incredible challenge for law enforcement and intelligence agencies to establish attribution. Um, and it, it can also create the unfortunate risk of unintended escalation if you have agencies targeting groups that they believe to be organised crime that then actually turn out to be state-sponsored. There's some real geopolitical dimensions there. Um, and I think... Uh, it would be remiss of us for not to not call out a, a pretty significant achievement by the um, Australia's agencies this year in relation to organised crime, which was Operation Ironside, or internationally it's often known as um, Operation Trojan Shield. This is probably not overstating it to say that this is probably the most significant and successful operation the Australian Federal Police and other agencies in Australia has um, achieved against organised crime. Um, you know, this was an incredible uh, collaboration of international. Uh, international proportions. Um, it involved some remarkably creative usage of um, encrypted uh, handsets, the Anom app. So essentially, agencies set up their own um, their own uh, product, the encrypted product, targeted for organised crime, uh, which was similar to Phantom Secure and EncroChat. Operated it covertly. Uh, and then we're able to garner all the communications of organized crime groups around the world. So it was an incredible success. But I think why I think it's also quite sobering is that it shows the national security uh, challenge of organized crime because this this operation, Operation Ironside and the Anom system that was used, um, f- some estimates say that it was only capturing about 5% of the encrypted communications of organised crime groups using these 
bespoke encrypted handsets. And I think what that therefore tells us is there is an immense scale of organized crime, both cyber-enabled and otherwise happening in the world today, and that presents an incredible challenge um, to not only vulnerable developing states, but also to liberal democracies like Australia. Um, Catherine mentioned the legislative challenges. You know, we are essentially um, grappling with how we be an internet-enabled society in the modern age. You know, the, the great promise of the kind of utopian vision of the internet that was given to us in the 1990s has tr- well and truly been dispelled. We now have to look at um, the internet as a quite pernicious vector of um, vector of threats, be it things like organized crime, cyber criminals, to social um, unrest, you know, the complete kind of fracturing of social cohesion. And so governments are looking afresh, and I think the Australian government quite quite particularly, at how we can create laws and regulate um, the internet so that we can potentially achieve a safer internet-enabled society. But it is no small, it's no small task, and one that goes to the the heart of the relationship of national security um, and democracy. Um, you know, how do we make sure that we respect people's privacy, their freedom of speech, and be um, a vibrant liberal democracy, but at the same time put um, significant kind of guardrails and restrictions around how we communicate with one another. It's worth pointing out, though, Will Operation Ironside fantastic and it shows the benefits of alliances and collaborative relationships at the working level because I understand it kind of emerged as a thought bubble in a pub somewhere in America with people at that working level uh, talking about how they deal with organised crime. But it's worth pointing out that that was the AFP using cyber means to go after offline, I mean everything's cyber enabled these days, but to go after organised crime in the real world. And it led to, as you said, massive, it led to over 200 arrests in every state in Australia of people in Australia. The problem with pure cyber crime, so these ransomware operators, for instance, it's borderless, they're offshore, often they're coming out of uh, Russia or former Soviet states. The real challenge, I would say, for the AFP and law enforcement in Australia next year is how do we take the successes of something like Operation Ironside and that really proactive, forward-leaning, smart uh, policing into cyberspace for purely cybercrime. And that's going to be perhaps even harder, but there's so much that can be done yet. So I'm going to go way off script here, and I just want to pick up on something that you just said, Will, that we originally saw the internet as something that was going to create this global utopia and, and create uh, provide freedom to all of the oppressed people around the world and so on and, and teach us all who we really are by interconnectedness. Has the internet actually taught us who we really are? Is what the internet has become actually a reflection of what society is, and was it really naive of us to – initially think that the internet was going to change us? I think that the internet was set up as a system that presumed we would behave in the better angels of our nature, that when we interacted online, we would be doing it with with grace, that we would be everything we would, we would put down, that we would be writing it with the same kind of consideration that we might write a, a draft letter to our grandmother. But the reality is, is that it's been the opposite. It's kind of, it's actually the incentives around our interactions on the internet are playing to the worse demons of our nature in the sense that um, the incentives of the internet 
encourage things that are provocative that generate emotive reaction and i think that's the difficulty is that if we we're all if we're all well behaved then the internet probably could be quite a utopia but unfortunately the incentive in structures aren't really there but that that to me that just sounds like just an extension of what media was before the internet we all knew that bad news sells and that sex sells and all of these things that that we are now put into algorithms on the internet was what existed in the media environment beforehand anyway so i'm I, i'm not sure that that's the internet that's doing this I, I i'm probably a bit cynical but i think that the the way we act on the internet now is just a reflection of what society is really like for fans of avenue q and musical theater i'm thinking about their song about what the internet is for and i'll leave you to uh, research that in your own time <laughs> i'm glad we're making cultural references here Catherine. I, I i would say that some of the most interesting pods we've had this year on this on this series have been those where we've tried to engage particularly um, political figures in Australia, um, but also at one point I think we had the, the Electoral Commissioner and we'll come back to that, um, on precisely the questions that you're asking, Chris. It's not it's not really off-piste uh, for this program to talk about um, ha- have we now reached a decisive moment in understanding the impact of the internet on social cohesion and national security. I think, again, to look for the, uh, not a silver lining, to look for that ray of hope in the Australian response. It's also been fascinating to see how um, somewhat pioneering Australian governments have been in trying to come to terms with this. Maybe, maybe it's heavy-handed, maybe it's, you know, Taking on Facebook in in sort of interesting David and Goliath moments with um, David at least briefly triumphing, um, but uh, I, I think we're at the beginning of a much longer longer game here. States are beginning to turn around, and the challenge now I don't think is going to necessarily be um, the you know the anarchy of the internet versus the um, supposedly civilized nature of liberal democratic societies. It's going to be a th- at least a three way contest where you've got um, liberal democratic societies seeking new forms of uh, regulation and, and, and power in protection of citizens' rights and values. You've got the the anarchy that you speak of and what we haven't spoken about so much today. You've got the, um, the harnessing of surveillance technologies, information technologies, uh, the internet and, and, and data more broadly by authoritarian states as, as tools that, um, frankly, uh, Lenin and Stalin and Hitler could never, uh, never dream of. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
I'm going to stick with you, Rory, now to try and wrestle us back onto script. And have you got anything that you would bring up as catching your eye in 2021? What are what are some of the standout, maybe two or three of the standout uh, occurrences or changes that happened this year that that you think are going to resonate? Oh, look, it's. <laughs> I think catching your eye sort of suggests that there's something appealing about um, about the things I'm going to talk about, and most of them are not particularly appealing events. I mean, you've spoken about the um, the insurrection uh, in Washington DC uh, on the sixth of, of of January. You know, a pretty horrific and defining moment. But again, the the wake up call that that has been for um, American democracy and civil society and liberal institutions everywhere is is something that we we shouldn't lose sight on. The Afghanistan withdrawal, um, a real shock uh, at, at a very emotional level, a very personal level, I think for uh, for millions, uh, of course, millions who were affected uh, directly in Afghanistan, but also for all those thousands of personnel from countries like Australia who have given a good part of their lives and in some cases have given their lives um, to that to that cause. Um, you know, I think we need to really ponder uh, on the the meaning of the Afghanistan withdrawal and that final collapse, and, and what it says for making sensible strategic policy uh, in countries like Australia in the future. Uh, and then, thirdly, the whole suite of China-related issues, not only the concerted pushback that we've begun to see through the Quad and AUKUS and, you know, I'd be keen to get back to those issues briefly if, if I can, the, um, I think, diplomatic and strategic initiatives involving Australia, but also uh, the question about the fate of Taiwan and how Taiwan is becoming much more of a global issue. You know, Taiwan has really moved, I think, centre stage globally this year, and that will be a story that resonates uh, in years to come. So I'd put those issues on the table. Rory, can I actually ask you a follow-up question yeah. on that? Uh, in terms of the, let's call it the domestic China debate in Australia, I seem to remember back at the end of 2019 when we were doing this wrap-up podcast then, you mentioned um, that we should be prepared for the fact that China-related stories will be front-page news in Australia for the foreseeable future, and certainly that prediction has been borne out. But now we're heading in Australia into a federal election in the first half of next year, China stories are absolutely front page and they are increasingly a source of political debate in Australia as well. How do you see that uh, debate evolving? Do you see any risks as we head into an election season and the two major parties perhaps try to draw a differentiation between their security and foreign policy platforms when it comes to China? There's so much in that um, question, Catherine, and thanks for remembering what was said a couple of years ago. I'll have to be very careful in choosing my words in future. But I think it was a reasonable um, forecast to make that not only stories about China and controversies about China, but typically quite negative and bad news stories about China are going to be on the front pages of uh, every Australian newspaper, not just for the next few months, but for the next 10 years. I think that still holds. And what's interesting is that that now holds in many countries around the world. If you look at, you know, at, at Europe, if you, if you look just to pick at random a small country at the Lithuanian debate about China at the moment, uh, that's, that's the story. Um, so the, the narrative battle about China's role in the world has been joined in earnest on every side. And it's going to be a very, very long and, and, and ugly campaign. Having said all of that, um, 
the long view I'd take of Australia's China debate, going back five years, not maybe two or three years, is that this was coming. You know, this was coming as early as um, as 2016 when we had controversies such as the, the Sam Dastyari affair that really brought this to light. And the point that I made then, which I would still hold, is that this debate needs to be owned and engaged in by the political centre. Uh, it needs to be uh, a debate that moderates on, um, if you like, both sides or all sides of politics, uh, that civil society, the business community, that universities, we all need to have views and positions on that we've thought through and not simply pretend that this issue is going to go away because otherwise you will find greater polarisation, greater exploitation of this as a political issue. So I do think we are in for a pretty sensitive time. Um, you know, personally, I'd like to see this issue no more politicised than it already is, uh, or this set of issues. And I think the way forward, at least after the dust settles, after the next election, is to um, to build more inclusive conversations that bring in civil society, that bring in the business community, that bring in universities uh, to recognise that, look, frankly, the way the Chinese Communist Party under its current leadership exerts power in the world is a powerful source of risk and even threat for Australia's interests. Um, but we're only going to play in the hands of that risk if we make this, um, if, you know, if, if we make this a core issue for defining political identity in this country. Can I draw you out even further on that inclusive conversation that you think we need to have? I'm wondering where you assess the maturity of the conversation and the level of transparency from government to public civil society business to let them make those informed choices. I'm thinking particularly about a couple of weeks ago when the Daily Telly ran a very splashy front page story saying that uh, China hacks an energy company in Queensland there's no shred of proof that, that I mean, that there was a ransomware event, more than likely Russian cyber criminals. There's no shred of proof. And the article had no shred of proof that that was a Chinese attack. And we'd be pretty concerned, I imagine, if that was, uh, you know, if a foreign nation state was, was hitting our energy grid. Um, how do we and do we need to do more to ensure that there is a bit of maturity and, and information out there so that those types of false positives don't get airtime and distract from the actual issues of the day. So I think one of the reasons that we've entered this this pretty dangerous territory is that for so long, until about 2016, it was essentially taboo in a lot of the Australian policy and media debate even to talk about China as a source of risk. And so you have seen now um, an overcorrection in some ways and you've seen this, this open slather on, on the issue so that every issue now becomes a source of risk and every piece of speculation turns into, you know, potentially a front page story. How do you address that? I think, um, having some pretty objective sources of, um, of reporting by government, uh, makes sense. I think we already see, for example, the way in which the, the ASIO Director General now releases an annual threat assessment covering the whole range of issues that, that, that ASIO is meant to look after, not only countering foreign interference, but also, of course, um, terrorism, threats to or threats of political violence and so forth. I think having more of those um, objective, if you like, fact-based, uh, sanitised versions of what's known in the classified domain by government would be useful. And something that I know that uh, you've written about previously in uh, a great National Security College report, the idea of having um, a kind of independent voice, I think, 
you called it a sovereignty commissioner in the report, but there's all sorts of ways we could define that. Having some kind of objective voice that's informed but that is not political to talk about the nature of the threat and the risk in a balanced way on a regular basis would be uh, incredibly useful. I also think, though, that when we study the, I guess, the more political utterances on these issues, um, we need, and when I say we, I mean I mean informed observers or observers interested in uh, the protection of Australian democracy, we need to develop much finer antennae and a greater sense of honesty for identifying what is, um, if you like, overly sensationalised or overly politicised and what actually is um a pretty objective statement of fact. And and just to turn this around a little bit, um, I think to talk about the, you know, the military risks in the region, the risk of conflict uh, is not, uh, if you like, necessarily an alarmist thing to do. There should be ways to talk about those issues as a statement of fact without turning it into a, a kind of political um game of, of taking sides. But going back to your point about the media, um, look, I think there, there does need to be recourse for um, uh, headlines like that because if we cry wolf too often, then we'll we'll miss the real threats which are there. Can I jump in? I, I, it does strike me that there's, a, that there's certainly a risk of us becoming so hysterical in the way we talk about the China issue that we start to make assumptions and essentially presume that we're in an inevitable slipstream towards quite overt conflict. I'd be interested to get all of your views on, you know, we were talking about cause for optim- optimism or otherwise before. I'd be interested to get your your views on where there might be room for optimism in the, the, the kind of great power contest between China and the United States. You know, we saw it didn't get a lot of attention, but we've seen um, Joe Biden have a face-to-face, albeit virtually, uh, meeting with uh, Chairman Xi and, and, and as well recently with President Putin. Now, look, those interactions can be dismissed as being sheer diplomatic niceties, nothing too concrete came out of them. But I think it's important to remember that that's also kind of how the detente with the Soviet Union started, with quiet, seemingly insignificant person-to-person connections that were then gradually built upon over time. Is there actually a potential that, going back to kind of my word of tipping points uh, or turning points, is there actually an alternate history here that might emerge of us actually beginning to get to a normalised and potentially stabilised and maybe more optimistic relationship with, with well, China. Well, I'm going to jump States. in there and I'm going to um, – I'm going to jump in and make two points and then I'm going to sort of leave you young people to talk about the interweb um, again. But look, firstly, firstly, I would say, and, you know, quite seriously, uh, we haven't reached that tipping point yet because we haven't had – a real crisis, and and I, I would argue that what's going to change the risk calculations in Beijing, and they're the risk calculations that the US and other countries, whether it's democracies or whether it's a country like Vietnam, for example, need to influence. It's their risk calculations we need to influence in Beijing. It's going to be those moments of crisis where the Chinese leadership, politically and militarily, realizes it cannot manage the escalation of the crisis. Now, that's an incredibly dangerous um, kind of learning journey to go through. But 
we didn't have detente in the Cold War until we went through those moments. We didn't have hotlines in the Cold War until we went through those moments. We haven't had that yet, I don't believe, in the Indo-Pacific. So that would be the sobering, not confident point that I make here. Um, I, having said that, I, um, I I still have a sense, which you know, I could be wrong, but I, my, my sense still is that um, you know China's uh, threats, its saber rattling, its military threats to Taiwan and so forth, um, at one level that really is about a domestic political purpose in, in China. And, um, you know, I, I think, yes, there's a, there is a level of aggression here, but it could be a considerably higher level of aggression yet to come. And so I think there is still some restraint occurring um, occurring in China. Um, the pushback that Japan has shown in previous years or that India has shown in previous years demonstrates that um, China does recalibrate when it meets resistance. And the last point I wanted to make is that we have to avoid reducing this to a US-China story. Mm. And just as I think, much as I uh, agree with the kind of spirit of the question that, that, that Catherine raised earlier, we can and should talk about the Australia-China relationship. Um, Australia was and is a canary in the coal mine, but it's a big coal mine and there are a whole lot of other um, relationships there. Where we will potentially help the US and China find some kind of settling point is the way in which third countries become engaged as well, not as mediators or you know arbiters or any of that, because of course the US and China won't let that happen, um, but as countries with, with agency in protecting their own interests, and that's where you know India, Japan, South Korea, as we've seen with its uh, recent presidential visit to Australia, Indonesia, the Quad, Europe. Um, if we can manage the family feud with France, for example, you know, I think the decisions of all of those actors uh, are going to be really important in the next few years. This is one of the reasons why I find the discussion about are we in another new Cold War uh, really interesting because I, I want to say yes if not, for no other reason that the last Cold War didn't turn into a hot war between the major powers. So if we can frame things in the same way, maybe we're not going to come in uh, a hot war here. But there were moments, Chris. There, there were, were very moments. close moments. There were very close moments. So before I throw to you, Will, on about uh, what caught your eye and where we're going for 2022, I just wanted to foot stomp, as they say, uh, some of the points that you made, Rory. And for me, the storming of the Capitol uh, on 6th of January is still one of the most earth-shaking events in decades, not even just the last 12 months. The term of Trump's presidency showed us all how his followers in the electorate as well as in Congress and the GOP approach politics and maybe even the law, science, common sense uh, in a less than orthodox fashion. That's polite. So, <laughs> so the, the, craziness, the craziness that we saw on January 6th is nothing new, but what that day showed us, an event since, is that his presidency was not a one-off event. Populism is a political force in the US, and with the political debate continuing to become more shrill and couched in existentialist terms, I think that there is a real potential for matters to deteriorate even further, and even for proto-fascism to emerge as a mainstream political movement in the US. And I know that that sounds shrill, especially given the ease with which people accuse themselves of being fascists these days. Uh, but we do see the core elements of fascism in some parts of the political debate in the US, whether it's a thing like the creation of a mythical past of making America great again. And we do see the vilification of those who oppose the populist or pseudo-conservative leader 
with claims of the media being the enemy or communists looking to bring the US down. And we do see massive propaganda operations with news organisations and fact-checkers being set up by political operatives to promote their vision rather than the actual truth. And I genuinely worry about where things are going in the US and should America be consumed by these internal issues, their presence and commitment to the region and as well as the bandwidth of their policymakers and defence personnel and thought leaders is going to be greatly reduced and that's going to have a great impact on the Indo-Pacific and particularly on allies like Australia. So it's whilst it's a huge issue for, for the US, it's a huge issue for the region as well. Also a big standout for me this year is uh, the big shift in China's approach to its nuclear strategy. We've seen numerous new fields of silos being constructed to possibly house uh, more intercontinental ballistic missiles on the Chinese mainland. We've seen new delivery systems tested in the shape of a hypersonic glide vehicle. And the debate about what's actually occurring and what all this means for global security is still very much in process. But the bottom line is, is that Beijing clearly sees either its own vulnerabilities as becoming a problem or the likelihood of increased tensions with the US and the need to bolster its deterrence capabilities. And that goes back to what you're talking about, Rory, about whether we reach a tipping point is that China obviously sees that a tipping point, whichever way it's going to go, is actually highly likely because it's not going to... It's not going to rock the boat by changing its nuclear strategy lightly and it's not going to expend those resources which are huge in terms of of spending on nuclear without deep thinking and deep concern about the direction that the world is moving in. I think I'd plant a flag here and suggest we have a uh, a very nuclear pot or two uh, in the new year, um, Chris. If we're all still here for that, um, because you know the, 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 these are these are profound issues. Um, expertise on on these issues is is kind of more thinly stretched than we'd like it to be and I think we could have some really lively discussions on that so I'll come back to that noting that the college has previously undertaken major research on the the undersea element of China's nuclear deterrence and um, and, and the you know the changing nuclear balance and there's some great research there that I think we could bring to bear Absolutely. Now, Will, quickly to you, uh, what did you see happening in 2021 and what are you looking for in 2022? Yeah, I I think I'd like to draw our attention again to try and inject some optimism into our perception of the world. Mm. I'd like to draw- Confidence, Will. I'd like to draw our attention uh, to the global vaccination program. I mean, there's been bungles, there's been issues with it, but I think it's important to step back and actually realise that this was a scientific achievement by the world comparable to, if not greater than, the moon landing. Like the ability the ability of the, the collective effort of the world scientists to get together to not only create a vaccine but from January at the start of um, 2021 commence a global rollout of a, of a vaccine is an incredible human accomplishment and one that may not have been able to be pulled off in even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And, and we shudder to think about what would have happened to vulnerable countries and the international system writ large had a pandemic um, like COVID-19 or worse spread without the um, dampener of a vaccine. So I think I'd, I'd, I'd like to say up front that is a massive accomplishment and to the point about um, optimism, I think it's also a demonstration of the ability for 
um, collaboration and cooperation across borders, across cultures, across language barriers to solve great problems. You know, we didn't get the result that w- that many would have liked out of COP26. There's a lot of issues, um, you know, relating to how we navigate um, the increasing kind of competition between authoritarian states and liberal states. These are challenges that require collaboration and cooperation. And I think there is a glimmer of hope to look to the, the incredible accomplishment of the vaccine of the vaccine and say human beings can still do it you know our system can still pull off solutions to these great and challenges well i'm going to put in a good word for the internet there as well because you know sort of hypothetically imagine a uh, a global pandemic on this scale without the ability oh, of yeah. our complex societies across borders to frankly manage uh, you know, ma- manage uh, some kind of business as usual without uh, you know virtual communications. So, yeah. so you know, let's uh, let, let's look on the bright side. Can, yeah. can, can you imagine being in lockdown without the internet? Yeah. Oh, exactly. I mean, shuttered to thick. Uh, uh, but I just want to also um, also build off off your point, um, the discussion you were, you were having there, Chris, about uh, the uh, the challenges the United States faces. I think another thing to note from this year is the emergence, as Rory mentioned earlier, of forums for collective leadership of the liberal order. You know, we've seen um, deepening of the Quad partnership, the emergence of AUKUS. Um, we're seeing experimentation with this um, D10 forum of democracies. And, and we're even seeing new experimentation in the Five Eyes grouping. And I think what that is signaling is that states that wish to uphold um, a liberal democratic kind of set of values in the international system are realizing that collective leadership is needed, that we cannot rely solely upon the United States to be that center of gravity on leadership of this order. Because as you say, the United States has got a lot of issues in, in its own system and closer to its own region that are going to continue to put pressure on its ability to have an Indo-Pacific yeah. focus. Um, and so these forums are actually um, potentially if they can be um, bettered down, um, potentially the centre of gravity for that collective leadership in in the years to come. So I think that's a really important um, uh, thing to put some emphasis on. Although, although g- given the um, the mixed commentary on uh, Biden's summit of democracies uh, th- this week, I guess it, at, at least that's a reminder that a lot of us want to get it right. You know, well, we're not just saying that was a waste of time. We're saying, well, it could have been done differently. So I, I like the idea of mobilising um, coalitions of democracies globally. It's just that the really hard, messy work has begun now. And something I'm going to be very focused on in the new year is how, for example, um, we begin to realign a lot of our, our, our Indo-Pacific strategies, given that the, um, you know, the AUKUS experience has shown up some of the fault lines there. I, I think the, the Summit for Democracy actually encapsulates two of the biggest impacts of the Trump presidency. Uh, once uh, On one side, it's, it's a response to the supercharging of populism and authoritarianism that we've seen growing throughout the world for uh, well over a decade now. But it's also a response to the way that the Trump leadership treated their partners and alliances around the world. Uh, so it, it definitely is a step in the right direction and, and we, we hope for greater successes there. Can, um, can I just... Yeah, go on. You're going to that, right? Well, yes. I'm going to give you a bit of a pessimism and then a bit <laughs> of optimism. I mean, I think that ultimately a lot of foreign policy is domestic, right? All politics is local. I really think the Summit for Democracy was it was a promise, was one of the earliest and biggest foreign policy promises that Biden made during his campaign. I think the realisation was made that it was probably going to be a bit of a damp squib mm. uh, months ago and it, they just went through with it anyway to follow through on an election promise. I mean, 
I wasn't tracking it super closely, but it doesn't really seem to have done much at all other than tick a box for, for Joe Biden. But to give you a bit of optimism just on your concerns about the trajectory of America, right, and understanding America has its domestic issues at the moment. But I think sometimes a bit of perspective on this, particularly from the viewpoint of Australia looking to America, is warranted in that America has always had its domestic troubles, right? Um, I think it was Oscar Wilde said it's the only country to have gone from barbarism to decadence without a civilization in between. That's <laughs> uh, great. And so domestic, there's always been that sense of domestic, deep domestic division, e pluribus unum, that's the motto of America from difference uh, unity. And I think sometimes it's hard for us as Australians where we have a really different political compact. Uh, we have a different society. Uh, we have different uh, f- values in some sense. They're very similar, but there are differences. And I think sometimes we look across to uh, the US and we're completely shocked. Uh, but I think perhaps uh, while you might say the trajectory isn't looking very good, I think we can get a little bit of strength from the fact that it's always been a it's always been a bit like that, and that's well, it how used to America. Be more violent in the sixties and seventies. Well, absolutely, so the Civil War. I, 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 <laughs> I certainly agree with that, and and I'm not trying to say that. Oh my God, we're going to fascism in the US. What I am saying is that the risk factors right now are really dialing up to 11. You're seeing state governors creating their own civilian militias that are not the National Guard. We saw 500 uniformed men march on Washington the other day. Now, I know that these aren't, aren't things that are, going, that are going to completely throw the nation into chaos, but they're major steps that, as you said, we haven't seen for decades upon decades. And when you put that together with, you know, just even the short list that I, I put there, and there's so much more you can add to that, um, I think that we are at a dangerous point. And, and to... I, as I said, I'm not saying we're, everything's about to fall apart. I don't want to be chicken little here, but I also don't want to be too sanguine and say, oh, this is the way America is. Everything is going to be fine. I think there is very much a real risk for much a gr- greatly increased social violence as well as a pivotal point in America's politics and the way that their polity approaches their leadership and governance and each other it as be, well. It bears an enormous amount of watching and my, my, my advice to the intelligence communities of countries like Australia is that we should be studying our allies as well as um, as well as well our potential adversaries. Well, and can I add in my advice to policymakers would be, you know, to bring it back to the interwebs, we see often things that start in America, protest movements, ideologies, uh, they they come into Australia. I think we should not only study our allies, but I think we should actually, particularly when so many of the threats that we face are to very amorphous things like democracy and our political systems, we should look to America as a model for our response, but also seek to understand where we're different and where Australia should sometimes go it alone uh, or, or calibrate our policy settings differently to reflect the fact that we have a different political and social system than America does. Yeah, I, I would also say that allies have, have a role to play as well because g- given when you have the deep social schisms like we're seeing in the US now, it makes them much more vulnerable uh, to manipulation from outside sources and, that, and that's where a concerted response to things like foreign interference and so on really come into play and that's for our that's for the greater good if we all have a concerted response to that. Now, we're quickly running out of time, so I just wanted to ask across the board if there's anything major that anyone's looking out for in 2022 or if there's anything that you think flew under the radar that people should have paid more attention to. Well, one thing that's flown under the radar of this podcast is the Solomon Islands, and I think the Pacific absolutely is a, is a space that 
we have been watching and we will continue to watch in 2022 and how Australia engages in the Pacific will continue to be really important. Yeah, and, and in fact, you know, we're, we're, we're there. I mean, I think the Solomon Islands, we're watching, we're, we're on the ground. We're now also watching to see whether there's any fallout from the, the New Caledonia, the controversial referendum in New Caledonia recently. Uh, but, you know, I think in, if, if anything, Australia and others, Australia, Japan, the United States, uh, others are beginning to invest in alternative sources of infrastructure in, in the Pacific to help small countries make their own sovereign decisions about how they engage with Chinese power. I think that's a long story uh, and that's generally a good news story. All right. So quickly, just to whip around the table, Will, has there been anything that you've read, listened to or seen this year that's helped shape the way that you've understood the world? Something that I've actually found really formative um, wasn't something I read or listened to. It was actually a, a guest lecture uh, we had here at the National Security College by one of the great PhD um, scholars at the ANU. So uh, Nathan Attrell um, presented on, because he's he's studying in um, the Chinese well, communist. Nathan has his doc- doctorate now, I believe. So oh, you can, excellent. You well, can Dr. Dr. Attrell. <laughs> well, Dr. Nathan Attrell, uh, who's been studying um, on the Chinese Communist Party uh, and how uh, China's I guess China's approach to the world, and he provided some really fascinating insights into the nature of um, the the current composition of the CCP, and how, in particular, how the um, Chinese bureaucracy uh, is influencing or unable to influence, I suppose, the strategic direction of of China. And he kind of helped me understand some some kind of key paradoxes that I think are difficult to understand about the Chinese state. So, for example, um, the fact the sheer fact that Xi Jinping has not yet designated a successor to so many of us seems to be a complete strategic blunder. But Nathan was able to to help me understand that one of the reasons of that is because the Chinese bureaucracy is so much built around um, predicting and anticipating the desires of the leadership that the very act of anointing someone as a successor shifts the inertia and the center of gravity for that system to start predicting and catering for the desires of the successor as opposed to the current leader. And so, therefore, that obviously creates issues of um, stability. So, anyway, I found um, Nathan's Nathan's studies, Nathan's insights to be um, a real highlight this year to helping to understand China. Nathan's been doing some great work, whether that's be some of his published material or even just his Twitter stream, which I'd all encourage you to follow. Catherine, uh, have you read or seen or heard anything this year that you might recommend to our listeners? Um, I would recommend the ultimate page turner of nonfiction, uh, which is Nicole Perlroth's uh, This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends, subtitle The Cyber Weapons Arm Race. Uh, she's a New York Times journalist, so she writes incredibly well and she tells the story of how we got to... <laughs> a state like we are today where the tools of hacking are so ubiquitous, where there is a really robust market for zero days, those exploits that uh, no one sees coming until they hit your network. And she also tells it in a really balanced way uh, and points out that a lot of this market for zero days for hacking tools, exquisite hacking tools, was promoted um, and developed in the US, uh, partly because of a lack of transparency and a lack of strategic thinking, perhaps, out of the US national security and cyber community. So absolutely a must read if you're generally interested in cyber, but also a pretty uh, interesting tale for us uh, who play in the space of policy uh, to think about 
some of the unintended consequences uh, of when we make short-term tactical decisions of, of how that might play out for strategy and security long-term. Rory, what's your recommendation? So, look, I'm going to pivot again and just note that you know, I always recommend that security analysts, intelligence analysts, strategists, all these so-called wonks, uh, you know, we all need to read more fiction, watch more TV, watch more movies, uh, get into fiction, drama, alternative worlds, because it helps us understand the human condition and it helps us understand the the unpredictability of human behaviour. You know, so um, to my to my friends in the intelligence community, if you're listening, those who who, who refuse to read fiction, please do. Um, and a few of the examples that I turn to, actually not reading fiction but watching fiction, um, probably the best thing I've seen on TV this year is a, a series called The Terror. And if any of you haven't seen The Terror, please watch The Terror. Um, it's, I think it's produced by Ridley Scott and it's, um, about reimagining some historical events through a kind of supernatural lens. But the first season of the terror, which is about the ill-fated expedition, um, to seek to find the way through the, you know, the, the Northwest Passage in the early 19th century, uh, the Franklin expedition, two ships, the most advanced ships of their time went missing with all hands, not seen again until I think some of the remains have been found quite recently, but with a supernatural twist that I won't give away, it's the best study in how not to do leadership um, that I've that I've ever seen. And I'd add that to probably Succession, which <laughs> is a study about how to do leadership in a really nasty way. Um, some really interesting uh, and you know disturbingly diverting uh, entertainment for uh, security analysts. I just want to add a plus one to the terror. I am not a supernatural horror fan, but the terror absolutely gripped me. It's the best thing I've seen this year. But that's because you're you're interested in nautical sort of naval things. The ship's got me in. I've I've been getting my my quota of fiction by following Hu Shi Jin on on Twitter and and reading Global (laughs) Times. So um, boom, boom, yeah. So, so, so my, my my votes for uh, articles and things that have shaped the way that I've looked at the world this year. Uh, one of them is how fascism works and the politics of us and them by Jason Stanley, and I, th- I think the uh, the reasons why that's gripped me have been self evident based on my previous comments. But the other article is actually one that I raised in um, our most recent podcast, where with uh, Charles Adel, Nadej Holland, and Jude Blanchett. And it's the article by Charles Edel and David Shulman called How China Exports Authoritarianism, Beijing's Money and Technology is Fueling Repression Worldwide. Now, that kind of goes hand in – I've only just realised it – it goes hand in hand with the with the other book, How Fascism Works. And it, it's, it goes into detail about how China is undermining democracy worldwide. And uh, so both of my recommendations reflect my concern and fear for what is happening in liberal democracies these days and, and the rocky future that we have ahead and on that bright note let's lighten the spirits and be a bit more optimistic and let's have a quick word about what we are going to be doing as professionals in 2022 rory can you tell us where the college or something great that the college is going to be doing next year so look the national security college at the australian national university is great and and that's why we're here of course um look the college uh 11 years on now is is on i think a really um intensified mission of of building australia's national capability on security broadly defined you know we 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 have uh, great academic colleagues but the stuff we do here is not only academic it's really about uh, building 
practical careers in policy. And that's why I think one of the highlights for us next year is going to be introducing a series of scholarships, uh, scholarships for women to undertake the uh, Master of National Security Policy degree here at the college. And these scholarships are special in several ways, one of which is that they are sponsored by uh, the agencies of the Australian intelligence community who've come out of the shadows um, to to support this initiative, uh, which will be available uh, to women uh, in Australia who are not already working in the Australian public service and who otherwise may not have the opportunity to undertake these studies. We're especially interested in women um, from diverse backgrounds and with unique skill sets. This is advertised on the National Security College website, uh, but I really think that it's a fantastic pathway, not only to study, but to building careers in this space. So that's a real highlight for me. That is excellent. Now, and even to to stick on that theme, Will, you want to talk about something that we're going to be doing here at the National Security Podcast next year? Yeah, we're really um, doubling down on the successes of the National Security Podcast and the the audience we've built um, to take it in some interesting new directions. So keep an eye out next year. We're going to uh, be exploring in in a limited series um, the voices of women in national security with a particular focus on on leaders in Australia's national security community um, as well as emerging voices as well. Um, so very much, again, contributing to um, the diversification of the, the national security voices that the college seeks to amplify um, and to, to also um, plug the Masters of National Security Policy that Rory mentioned. Um, intakes now are, are open for inquiry, so go to our website and have a look at that degree. It's it's a re, remastered, remodeled um, postgraduate degree that's that's really quite exceptional. Um, and I'd uh, also say that in addition to all the fantastic things you can learn at the National Security College, I met my husband studying here, so you may also find love. So, <laughs> yeah, so um, am I correct in saying that just like myself, you're an alumnus of the um, uh, look, course? Once you get in, you can't leave. That's the <laughs> thing. That's the risk. Once, you, once you're in here, you're never leaving. Absolutely. Well, Will Stoltz, Catherine Manstead, Roy Medcalf, thank you very much for joining us for the discussion. All the best to our audience and yourselves for the Christmas and the holiday period. And I now leave you all with our new theme music, which you'll be hearing more of next year. My thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. That's it for today and the year. For more information on the Master of National Security Policy and our scholarships, follow the links in the show notes. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. 
That's stamps.com. Code program.